in our series called um, Carols, uh, which we subtitled Why We Sing. It's our hope that as we walk through these songs together, that, that we can deepen our understanding of really what Christmas is all about and really get at the heart of why we're singing. Why we're singing these songs. You know, Ligon Duncan, as he's a pastor of a Baptist church way down south, uh, talked about this in one of his series recently as well on uh, songs, carols. He says that we're about the business of preaching the scriptures. I think it's important to note that what we're not trying, uh, and I think it should be uh, stated each week, we're not trying to preach songs. We're about the business of preaching the scriptures. And yet, there is some incredible theology that must be unearthed in these songs that what? Come from engagement with the Scriptures. As he goes on to say, he says that these songs are like windows for us that help us look into the biblical story. Really? What is uh, getting, uh, we are getting at with that? So today, our next carol is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, as we just sung. It was written by Charles Wesley, and it was published in a collection of hymns in 1744. That's going way back, 1744, in a work he called Hymns of the Nativity of Our Lord. Listen to these words uh, as they're posted, I believe, up front. The poem, the song, is this. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Come thou long, expected Jesus. The Maisies have a group of friends a group because it's a large family, we're calling a group of friends, uh, called the Lambs, okay? L-A-M-S, not like lambs, like, bah, like, okay? The Lambs, L-A-M-S. Derek and Stacy and their six lovely children. Uh, we went to seminary with Derek and Stacy, and for the last 12 years or so, we have, from time and again, gotten together for family vacations, couple getaways, 
The kids are just close. They love to get together. We live far away, so we can only do that once, maybe twice a year. Okay, it's on our calendar when our time is booked, that family, right? Like, we're six months out, but we've figured out what weekend it's going to be, and we put it on the calendar, and we begin to talk about it as if it's going to be tomorrow. And then we plan, we start counting down the days. The lambs are coming in 35 days. And then when the day finally arrives, we go, oh shoot, time to clean the crib, right? Because eight more people are going to live in this small house for a week. So we get all of our stuff cleaned up. And then as the hour is approaching, you know what we do? What all great Maisies do when they're waiting for someone to come. They pace the house and stare out the window. You do that too, right? Okay, I'm the weirdo. We pace the house and we stare out the window, kind of looking down the street. Is that 12-passenger van turning the corner? That's what we do. We wait with anticipation, expectation. It's like we've been waiting for years and like at the very same time we saw them five minutes ago. That's what it's like when the Maisies wait for the lambs. There's much excitement and expectation. And what we see in this song, right from the opening statement, is that's what it is to be the people of God. A people that have, throughout history, heard a promise, not knowing the date per se, but, but hearing a promise of one who is coming. And then the people of God are those who wait, who, who stare out the window, who bite their fingernails looking out the window to see when in fact this long-expected one, Jesus, would come into the world. They've been waiting, the people of God, for a long time. Say it with me. A long time. Let's say it again. A long time. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Into the beginning of the story. We talked about this in the story of God, where God always is and has always existed. Right? And then we talked about how in that he creates the world for his glory. And then in our, in our decision to rebel and disobey the Lord, we fell into a fallen sinful condition. And in the midst of that, in the midst of God unleashing his just punishment on those who have rebelled against him, we read these words in Genesis 3.15. If you want to turn there, you can. God says to Satan, the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Meaning there's going to be hostility. You're at odds, your offspring and her offspring, Eve's. The text says this, that he, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Basically, someone is going to come that is going to crush you, Satan. In this we hear the first gospel, as many call it. The first proclamation of hope in the midst of our sinful despair. And so in these moments, Adam and Eve, the human race, wait for the fulfillment of that plan. We hear uh, promises again in Genesis 12. And I've probably skipped some with Noah. 
we think about Abraham. Leave this place. I'm going to bring you to another place. I'm going to bless you. And the whole world's going to be blessed through you, Genesis 12. He reinforces those promises with Isaac and Jacob, telling him about his commitment to these people. That by his grace, he's going to choose them and save them and set them apart for himself, right? And someone would come. And he tells Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet will come. He tells David about a coming king that would be through his line, who would rule and reign forever. He tells Isaiah in chapter 7, chapter 9, which Jeremy talked about last week, that Emmanuel, right? There will be a sign, a child would be born. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. Right? And all those names after in Isaiah 9. A, a king, a child is coming. The suffering servant of Isaiah 40. And then Daniel 7 talks about the coming of the Son of Man. Bottom line, God's people had heard a promise. And therefore, they were a people who long expected the coming and the fulfillment of that promise. And in the person of Jesus, that waiting is over. God had made do on his promise. Based on the covenant promise, Jesus is the long-expected one. Come thou long-expected Jesus. Right? And so we see right here that the song of those waiting for Jesus' coming celebrates who he is. I think if you look through this, this, this song that Wesley wrote, it's really a declaration, a, a celebration of who the person of Jesus is. And so we see here that he is the long-expected one. Not only that, that Jesus is the one born as the deliverer of the people of God, right? Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to what? Set thy people free. Jesus is the one who is born to set the people of God free. That's who Jesus is. And so we sing in celebration of that. So we hear those words. He's born to set thy people free. Do not miss the importance of the word born. I think we quickly jump to set us free. But we can't miss the fact that, in fact, it's, it's repeated time and time again in this song that he was born. He's born. This does not mean he was created. This does not mean that in this moment he was made. No, we've already established. Scripture has already shown us that Jesus is and always has been and always will be the eternal God, Son of God. What it means is, is that he was indeed born into the world as God himself taking on flesh, incarnate, right? In human form, God. He has flesh, just like you and I. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. This is how we can say that Jesus is Emmanuel, right? He is God with us, present physically with us. Galatians 4, 4-7 through 7, talks about the connection between His birth and our redemption. And I want us to see that quickly. So if you can, turn to Galatians 4, 
uh, 4 through 7. Please bear with me. I'm not used to the flipping and flapping here, uh, but uh, I think the Lord's using this nonetheless. So Galatians 4, 4 through 7. The text says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Don't miss that. Say it again. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, redemption, something we easily celebrate. You can't celebrate redemption apart from incarnation. It's inextricably linked. The coming of God in the person of Jesus, the incarnation of God himself, is inextricably tied to his effectiveness and his ability to actually set us free from what we're about to talk about, sin. He needs to be born of a woman. He needs to be born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law. Amen? The incarnation... We can't lose it. You may say, you know, I believe a lot about the Bible, but the whole virgin birth thing, fully God, fully human, I'm not really buying that. Well, if you doubt that, if you question that, if you just think that's so unbelievable, I think it's at the same time hard for you as well to see the effectiveness of the very salvation that you celebrate. If he was not born of a woman, born under the law, if he was not conceived by the Holy Spirit and yet born of the Virgin Mary, on what basis can we claim assurance that his work, his life, was effective to set us free from sin and death? We can't find one. We must have the incarnation. We must have the virgin birth for redemption to be effective for the people of God. Let's not miss that. Born to set thy people free. And you say, free me from what? Right? I, I, I live in America. <laughs> I'm in the land of the free and the brave. We got it all together. Remember, we, we got in a fight with those guys a couple hundred years ago when Wesley wrote this. Now 300 years ago. I'm getting old. Right? We got in a fight with those guys. We yelled, no taxation without representation or something like that. And now we're free. So what do you mean we're slaved? We need to be set free. We're not enslaved. We're good. But we see that what Wesley's talking about is so much more than freedom from a grumpy king who taxes us without giving us a voice in parliament. What we see is that Jesus' birth means that we have freedom from all human fear and all human sin. That's exciting. That's something to celebrate. From our fears and sins, release us. You know, people today are scared out of their mind. Right? People live in fear. Of what we would probably point out and say kind of silly things. They also are in fear of some pretty dreadful things. Americans live in fear constantly. It is indeed the age of terror. Right? Do you know what the top five fears USA did a little study in October? They, top five fears for people? Some of them are quite silly. Some of them understandable. Walking alone at night. 
That's the number one. Go figure. Number two, victim of identity theft. And if you've had any of those fears, I'm sure Bill Lodger could help you out. Internet safety. Uh, once again, Bill Lozier. Last, public speaking. And uh, I know we've all had those fears, right? Kind of silly, kind of superficial, but yet people truly dread those things. So Jesus has come to set us free from our fears. Let's put the pause button on fear. But also set us free from sin. Sin being our fallen condition before God, right? Uh, Romans 3 says, all have sinned, all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we, were, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, literally walking around dead. Some of you probably watched that show, The Walking Dead. I don't, but some of you may. I'm kind of scared of it, to be honest. Back to the fear thing, right? It's kind of spooky. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins, literally spiritually bankrupt, lifeless. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. So we are a people who do sinful things. We reject God. We're, we're by nature people who have a state of sin. Like given first opportunity, guess what? We'll take it to sin. We're oriented, we're bent that way. We're a people who live in a fallen condition and there is absolutely nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to deal with that condition. Only God is our hope for that. And I think the reality of sin that's universal placing us in a position where we truly are just recipients of the righteous indignation and wrath of Almighty God. This leads us to what should be our greatest fear. God Himself. So when it talks about set us free from our fears and our sins, I think those things go hand in hand. I, I, don't, I didn't talk to Mr. You know, Mr. Wesley, in preparation of this. But our greatest fear is not anything in this world, but being subject to the just, righteous indignation of a holy, perfect, pure God who sees our sin, knows our sin, and has every right to punish it. That's scary. And yet we see the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is the one who sets us free from fear and sin. Amen? He is the one. Galatians 1.4 Grace to you and peace from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. You hear that? He gave himself for our sins. That's why he came. That's why he died. For our sins. So that he might rescue us from this present evil age. God is indeed in Christ our rescuer, our redeemer, our deliverer. 
Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us. Why'd he do it? To him who loves us and freed us. There it is. He's freed us from our sins by his blood. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus' birth means freedom from all human fear and all sin for those who trust in him as their deliverer. Do you hear that? You're free. Now, some of you are holding on to past actions and guilt and sin and, res or, and resentment as you think about your relationship with God. It's like a big monkey on your back that you can't seem to get rid of. But herein lies the truth of the gospel. That if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you are free. Don't miss that tonight. And if you've not done that, if you've not said yes to Jesus, today is your opportunity to see Christmas for what it really is and to begin to sing a song of expectation and celebration concerning Jesus that he is indeed your deliverer, the one who sets you free from all fear and sin. That's Jesus. So place your faith and trust in him. Amen? It's who Jesus is. He's the long-expected one. He is truly the deliverer of his people from their sin, their most oppressive enemy. Moving along as quickly as I can here, Luke chapter 2, verse 25 and 38, you see uh, these words about Israel's strength and consolation. Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. That word consolation, not often in the scriptures, but one that when you hear it, you go, oh yeah, that's right, Simeon. Luke chapter 2, verse 25, if you've got your Bibles, free, feel free to turn there. What is Wesley getting at with this? Israel's strength and consolation. If you've forgotten like me where Luke is, it's in the New Testament. Let me got a hard time getting there. So Jesus' parents, after his birth, are bringing him in, 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 in just being obedient to the, to the law of Moses, presenting him to the Lord. Uh, there was a man there, Simeon. Verse 25 talks about him. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. Comfort. Solace. In times of discouragement and suffering. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Basically, he sees Jesus, and he takes him in his arms, verse 28, and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So in the coming of Jesus, guess what? Israel's strength and consolation is physically present. And basically, Simeon can die. He's seen it. Not only him, but turning the page, if that's the case in your Bible anyway, verse 38 talks about Anna, the prophetess, right? Right? coming up to the temple at that very hour 
she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him all who were waiting. There's that theme again. For what? The redemption of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus is both the strength and the consolation for his people who have long suffered. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. That's Jesus. Simeon saw him. My eyes have seen your salvation. Anna saw him. All those who were waiting for the redemption of the nation. Again, I'm doing my best here to be faithful to the Bible and to the song. Last, we see these phrases that really can be grouped together. The language changes. We go from Israel's strength and consolation, and we move to the whole earth, right? Hope of all the earth. Dear desire of every nation. Joy moving to the individual. Joy of every longing heart. Bottom line, Jesus, Jesus is the hope of all the earth. He's the desire of every nation. He is indeed the joy of every longing heart. And you say, no, he's not. <laughs> I mean, you look at the world today. And can we actually say that? Can we say that Jesus is the hope of all the earth? Can we look at that and say, yeah, he is the dear desire of every single nation. I don't know how many billion people are on the globe, but could you say Jesus is indeed the joy of every longing heart? Yes and no, right? You look at the world today, and quite honest, you may even be looking in the mirror, and you see that we have misplaced hopes, misplaced desires, and misplaced joys, don't we? Things that we want. Things that give us joy. Things that we place all of our eternity and future in. And they are anything but Jesus. Most of which, in the world I would propose, put their hope, desire, and joy in themselves. Self is at the center of the world, isn't it? In a day unlike any other, at least though it seems. Self is at the center of the world. Me, myself, and I. If it's not ourselves, it's someone else. Another person. Another relationship that we've built our identity on. That if I lose him or if I lose her, my whole life falls apart. I've got to have more time with him. I've got to spend some more time with her. If we could just do this together, then I'll be happy. If we could just attain to that, then I'll be excited. That's my hope built on another relationship. Some people put it in things, possessions, money. They hold on tight to it. This is my hope, the here and now, how much possessions I can hoard and hold on to and obtain for myself. For others, it's not that. It's goals, accolades, accomplishments. That's my hope. If I could just be a vice president, or if I could just get that Harvard MBA. We begin to have misplaced hopes about what true joy is. At the end of the day, all of these things, I think, are what Keller gets at when he talks about counterfeit gods. 
We're just worshiping a God of our own making. And we find that no matter how much we pursue it, no matter how much we run after it, it's never enough. There's always a need for more. It does not satisfy. It just creates a deeper hole that needs to be filled inside of our heart. So Jesus is truly the hope of the earth. He truly is the dear desire of every nation. He truly is the joy of every longing heart, whether or not we know it or not, right? And I love it because even as I'm looking at this text, I'm like, man, the world out there is really bad place. I've got to look in the mirror myself. Christian, we've got to look in the mirror ourselves and say, is our hope, is our joy, is our dream, is our desires placed in any other thing other than the person of Jesus? If so, it's misplaced. And it will never satisfy. But Jesus will, amen? Even as we approach this building situation, just talking with many of you, I know that this is exciting. We're hoping uh, for the best here. In some ways, it seems like it's a light at the end of the tunnel for us. And friends, it should not be so, should it? Jesus is the light of the end of our tunnel. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to want to move down the street. It just means that whatever is on our heart, it needs to be in really submission to and anticipation of the person who really is the joy of our heart. It's got to be all about Jesus, amen? And nothing else, or it's misplaced. Jesus is the hope, desire, and joy of the world. And here He is, a baby born, the song that we celebrate. And so, what we see here is the song of those who are waiting for Jesus is one that is celebrating who He is and what His birth is going to accomplish. And we've only talked about the first stanza. And I promise, the next one will go much quicker. Everyone say amen to that. Jeepers. So what we see in the second stanza really, I think, is a simple uh, emphasis that we could easily overlook. The song of those waiting for Jesus' coming celebrates their king. Don't miss that word king we have a child and yet we have a king right born a child and yet a king born thy people to deliver amen born a child and yet a king five direct references to the fact that jesus birth means the birth of a king and the inauguration of a kingdom right five times in this final uh, movement here. I couldn't help but think of Luke chapter 2. We're already there. We might as well look at it. At the announcement of Jesus' birth. Excuse me, verse 11 and 12. The angels really say this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Yes, born thy people to deliver. A Savior who is Christ, the Lord. Those two titles. Christ is that word for Messiah. That long-awaited, promised, holy and anointed King who would come, rule and reign forever, and set uh, Israel free from their enemies. That's 
Messiah. That's Jesus. He is a child, yes, but he is indeed the Messiah. He's the holy and anointed king, right? And then you see the next title, the Lord. Do you know what the declaration of of the world was during these times? Who was Lord? Caesar was Lord, and and he alone. So the declaration by the angel is that basically Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He's the boss. He's a child in humble state. And yet at the same time, a king. He rules, he reigns. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, as he says at the end of Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now we come face to face with our authority complex. You see, the people of God were longing for a king. We are not a people that longs for anyone to rule and reign over us, are we? We don't like authority. In fact, we love autonomy. We want to call our own shots. We want salvation, but we don't want a Lord and a king to tell us how we should live. Tell me I'm crazy. Okay, I'm kind of crazy, but not about this. He's king. He's Lord. He's in charge. And he was born not just to deliver, but to reign in us forever. That's why he was born. You know, even in the book of Exodus, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about redemption of a people. For what? Come on, you guys don't stare at our sermon titles all week? Redeemed for worship. That's right. Redeemed for worship. He's setting us free so that he might rule and reign in us. Amen? He doesn't just live with us as Emmanuel, but now he's by his spirit living in us. I think that's pretty powerful. So often we think of a God who's far and distant and cold, and yet the God that we worship, that we see in the birth and the coming of Jesus Christ is a God that is not only present with us, but present in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that takes residence inside of us to the extent that we are now called in the New Testament the temple of the living God. He lives in us so that He might reign in our hearts. Don't miss this word. Alone. God wants no roommate in your heart. There's no roommate in your heart if God lives there. He alone takes residence, rules, and reigns within us. So our song celebrates Jesus to whom we willingly submit. Come, we need you. A righteous, loving, gracious king with a kingdom that will be built on what? Grace. We need you come and reign. And last, our song celebrates Jesus on whom we humbly depend. And these are some of my favorite parts of the song. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. And then last, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Love that. 
by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to our glorious throne. You see, this gets at the all-sufficiency of Jesus. When we approach God, it is only based on His merit, not our own. We live in a day and age where people think that 51-49, we're good. Right? That if we're 51% of the time not doing too bad, we're good. But what we understand is that our righteousness before God, our, our best effort, our best attempt is stained. It's a filthy rag. But not Jesus. Jesus is perfect. His obedience is perfect. His motives are always pure. He's all-sufficient. And on that basis, on the basis of His merit, on the basis of His perfect obedience, we can now expect God to literally raise us from the dead to His glorious throne. So that state that we formerly talked about, being in sin, dead in our trespasses and sins, we can be assured that we will be raised from the dead to the glory, glorious throne. Why? Not because of us, but because of His all-sufficient work on the cross in our place for our sins, as 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. You know, that was, for me, to be a little authentic, if you will, the most encouraging thing I read this week. Maisie uh, had some moments this week in the parenting world where I thought, man, good thing God the Father is a perfect Father. And I know I'm doing the right thing, I said to my wife. I know I'm doing the right thing, but still there's something inside of me that says something's not right with me, even though I know I'm doing the right thing. And, and I had to lay in bed at night and say, you know what? My obedience, my best effort is still filthy. It's still a mess before God. My fathering, my parenting falls so short of the perfection of our Heavenly Father. And it's in this moment that I lay in bed and I can go to sleep in peace because it is the all-sufficiency, the perfect obedience of Jesus that gives me assurance and joy, not my own attempts. Amen? So as you struggle, as you wrestle with imperfect obedience, rest in the all-sufficiency of Jesus. He's enough. And so our song celebrates that. Come thou long-expected Jesus. That was Wesley's song, almost looking back into the Old Testament with Jesus' glasses on. Right? He knew the name of the one the nation was waiting for. And yet, we're still a people waiting, aren't we? The waiting isn't over. He's come, and yet He's still what? Coming. Jesus made it clear to His disciples. I'll be back. I'm leaving for a little while. But then I'm going to come back. And so we are a people that continue to sing 
Come thou long expected Jesus. We're still a people that wait with expectation, staring out the window, if you will, pacing the house, expecting for Christ to turn the corner and come to us and save us fully, finally, and forever. These are not the final words of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.